gonna buy back in the Jehovah Wind. Wow, three thousand dollars. She gotta hit the lotto. 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 April 13th, here we are folks, back with another Hit the Lotto episode, last week was a rough one, I, I didn't do one last week, it was under the weather, it was pretty bad, and uh, uh, it's actually going to lead me into the, my my first uh, mission of the day, my rant of the day, but uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't feeling great soon enough that maybe the, the, the podcast will have so many episodes that I can, and I, maybe I can find a producer that I can say, put up that best of episode, <laughs> maybe soon I'll have so many episodes that I can fill an hour with just best of episodes that that's that's pretty funny and crazy to think about it but uh uh, we're back this week feeling better much better still got a bit of a something going on but it's uh it's going away and um and my guest tonight actually uh was was kind enough to message me and 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 knew something wasn't right even when we talked to me but uh i'm so happy to have him in the studio uh like Listen, he's the he's the the head coach of the of the, the national team here in Ireland, the Wolfhounds. He's, I mean, but that's not even like, honestly, the crazy thing about it is, is that like that's for for me, I, I, my relationship with him, that's not even a, a pinnacle for me. Like that's 
just right. You know what I mean? That's to me in, in my short time here in Ireland, that was just kind of right and fitting. And, and I wouldn't expect any, anything less, but like even more than that, the dude is like an unbelievably awesome dude. And one of the first, literally one of the first people I met in the game after outside of my first coaching experience. Um, uh, and, and has been, you know, f friendly and closer and friendlier and, and is a great person and a great friend. And Karen O'Sullivan, coach, welcome to the, uh, the show this evening. I'm so happy to have you on. Thanks, coach. You say the nicest things. Um, it's the main reason I came on. I heard all your lovely introductions and uh, <laughs> I'm humbled, honestly humbled by him. What you just said there. <laughs> Well, I, I just just in case, like later in the show, things if I say something that's out of line, not about you, but but about something, and you don't, we don't want to get into it, or if it's a political hot topic or something, just know that that's the way I feel truly. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Um, I know I, I usually start off, so I, I like to bring the guest on first, and you could, you're welcome to sort of chime in. But normally at the beginning of the show, I go on a, a little rant of sorts. But today, I got I got two things to 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 talk about. One is one is bad, and one is good, or one is questionable to me, and one is like pretty crazy when you think about sort of meta pictures. But uh, so they um stopped. The, the two vaccines, right? So, so, so my wife, we're talking about COVID. That's right. So I had to go get a COVID test. I wasn't feeling good. And we said, like, go, go get the test. Like, go get it done. Okay, I'll go get it done. And it was like the worst 20 seconds, realistically, when they, you know, they, the swab in the nose, both sides, in the throat, another one, blah, blah, blah. It was really, it was kind of like, when I got into my car, I was like, fuck, that, that really kind of, sorry, but that kind of hurts a little bit. Like, that's, that's crazy. And then I went home, and it's this machine, and it's, it's, it's craziness what's going on. And it got me thinking, like, though, like, that this is, that was the first sort of, they were the first sort of first front line. That was my first interaction with front line-ish type workers, if you know what I mean. Like I had uh, some, I had a, a injection in my knee cause my knee was bothering me a, a while back, but that wasn't, that's not frontline. I mean, I had to take precautions, but you know, and don't get me wrong, they're frontline workers, but I'm just talking about me. That, that wasn't frontline. This was frontline. And to think that the guy who did that to me, like does it, that's what he does. He stands outside that little room and he gives those tests and of those tests, some people have the disease. So like, he's just walking into, the line of battle before there was there was a vaccine for this thing and that's insane it just kind of blew my mind to think about it at first but then i'm like okay so now the astrazeneca uh vaccine they they stopped the, you know the under only under 60s here in ireland it's under or over 30s over 60s over 30s in the uk or 55s in france or whatever it is and you're like okay they're worried about blood clots so you look at what the data shows you and you know, the data was like, you know, that doesn't look like a huge amount. Like, and now in the U.S., the FDA is started looking in Europe, is looking to halt the, the Johnson Johnson vaccine because for the same reason, blood clots. So it's causing the, these blood clots. And then you look at the data behind it. And it, the data, when you actually look at the data, you're like, why are they even telling us about this? Why is the government and these scientists even telling people 
about this unless they were trying to be literally so politically correct in how they answer and save as many lives as possible. Don't get me wrong. It's about saving lives. I get that. But it's, it's insane to think that they're saying that these need to be halted or these need to be moved to these certain age groups because of these reasons. When you look at the minute data that's available. I think it's one in a million with the Johnson and Johnson and it's four in a million or something with the AstraZeneca. And when I look at medication that I have to take daily, I looked into it a little bit today and it was like 15 out of a, out of a thousand or 15 out of, out of 10,000. The numbers were ridiculous. My daily medication, which is nothing. It's it's what I have to take. You know what I mean? And then to do that. So like two things come to mind when I think about it. First is like when the regular person looks at these things and says it, or maybe I'm wrong and coach, you can forgive me on this and we'll get into in it, talking football and stuff, shopping stuff next. But, you know, just part of the rant is that are they playing us for fools or are they the fools themselves? So are they so worried about keeping their jobs as politicians that they're take and scientists are the ones who are saying this, like they're getting involved by, by this new night in Ireland. It's this new NIPAC or whatever. Hell we never heard an uh, Okay. We heard it. We heard NFIT. We heard all in. We heard NFIT. Now it's this like special immune. These people are there to study it that are suggesting to the government to stop it. When you look at the numbers, the numbers don't prove that they should be stopping anything, anything. Or are they lying? So are they like, is all of this, or are the numbers wrong? Are the numbers completely so wrong that the government is actually saving our lives by shutting this down? Which one is it? It's got to be one or the other because it's not the actual reason right now. There's something to it. There's either conspiracy, there's a conspiracy theory somewhere. There has to be, or am I just completely off base with that? Am I just completely wrong with thinking that, one in a million chance or whatever the stupid number is, and I, whatever the exaggeration is, but the, the, the minute chance of a blood clot is outweighing this pandemic that I've been sitting on my ass in the same room for the last year plus doing this is causing. This, the, the, am I making sense there, coach? Well, there's um, you are, you're making perfect sense, but one of the things, I mean, I take medication on a daily basis, not for anything major, and again, like you, it's, um, you know, the leaflet that comes, you don't even read the box now, you read a leaflet, um, you know, it, it states all, you know, it can cause blood clots and lots of other things, but um, that's been, you know, prescribed or marketed or sold in an environment where you don't have a political movement who's looking to shoot it down. So if you had you know, whatever medication you, you're taking, if you had this whole anti-vaxxer equivalent who are out there just waiting to jump on any issue whatsoever to push an agenda, which will reduce the number of people ultimately who are vaccinated, um, you might approach it slightly differently, you know, and say, hey, look, we're going to do the due diligence. We're going to slow things down. This is why we're slowing it down. Um, and we'll come back and get it later on. That's not my personal opinion. Like if somebody yeah. asked me, I'd take a needle in the eyeball right now. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that's what, <laughs> you know, these people aren't operating on um, a level of, or, you know, distributing ordinary medicine through, you know, because like if you look at the anti-vaxxer um, public media assault, I guess is the only word I can use for it. You know, it's, it's, it's going to jump on anything. And when it does, 
that crosses sort of political boundaries and it's it's got if that gets momentum at all um it could undermine a vaccination program um you know maybe here in ireland but you know maybe in other jurisdictions more so that's, yeah, I guess I, I guess you, I think. yeah, it's 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 funny because I wouldn't have thought about it from that end, and then the question comes up, and that's why I do this podcast because then the question comes up, like man, that just means that I have literally underestimated. Have we underestimated that how much this sort of uh, possible, you know, vaccine issues, whether it be anti-vaxxer or or or, you know, one world order or like the, either the craziest QAnon to even the, even folks that are just like, oh, I don't want to take this first batch, you know, even th those are they, is there so much political, I never would have thought that there would be so much political power there. And then it comes to a question like, you know, you always hear about, you know, the, the, that this is, we just gotten softer, right? Like that you always hear like the generations, like the older folks to the, the, the younger folks to the younger folks, oh, you're soft, you're soft. It's about, you know, presentation trophies now for your, you guys are soft, you know, yeah. would the politicians of then have made those same decisions based on this small fraction of, or, you know, uh, or would they have said, you know what? no, we're going to save these people's lives and there's going to be issues and we're going to stand up to those issues like men and, or, and women. And we're going to do that. But now are the, has it become so soft that the irony of staying into keeping this power and keep holding your shit together during this pandemic have made rise to the extreme left and the extreme right, you know, because the guys in the middle are just trying to hold their shit together. And that is that what the vaccines do? Is that what they're just trying to hold their shit together? So when we do get out the other side of this, they can stay in power, you know, just to be the good guys. <laughs> well, you know, it could be the difference between, um, you know, no, they're kind of managing people with different uh, perspectives. Whereas before, you know, those people wouldn't, wouldn't have been given the option to even voice their opinion. So, um, you know, we've got a lot more freedom across the globe than we did before. So, you know, with that freedom, um, you know, there's an amount of responsibility there. And I guess it's allowing people to voice, you know, what I would consider to be dubious um, claims about vaccinations. And this goes back way before, um, way before this COVID outbreak. I mean, you know, anti-vaxxers are part of life all over the world and um, they're kind of a robust, Bunch. They seem to survive for people who aren't vaccinated. They survive a lot. Um, so, wait, yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, it's true. It's a hundred percent right. Like you, you, it's, it's just, it's a crazy kind of. It, it just brings up so many questions. Like and like you, I guess that's the thing with me. It's just like you, you know, in any group chat or any conversation I've had with anyone about any of these things, the same thing. Give it to me. <laughs> Give it to me, yep. you know, me. give it to me. AstraZeneca, Johnson, Johnson, call me up. Give it to me. I'll do it. You know what I mean? You should give me the right. You talk about th this is a progressive country and there's freedoms and there's rights. Then they should put that into the people's hands and say, we have this. Do you want it? Come and get it. You go to the front of the line. You know, and, and that's, that's what they should be doing. Too. There's another side to it as well, which is like, I mean, this thing has only been rolled out. The vaccines have only been rolled out in the last kind of five months, four months, depending on where you are. And I mean, for this is brand new medicine. So mm -hmm. obviously the concerns, any concerns that are raised, um, are going to be treated a lot more seriously than, let's say, the medication you and I or anybody else. I heard today that the oral contraceptive has a higher rate of blood clot 
than um, you know than any of the vaccines. So, but again, they're out there a long time. So I guess the concern is they don't you know they don't want to see well the numbers of blood clots are low. No, as we increase the number of vaccines, are those numbers also going to increase? But I just think it's amazing that you know we've come up with not we not you and me, but you know we as a a race have come Societally, up with yeah. so quickly. <laughs> You know, we've, we've supported uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I truly yeah, believe, I, I, yeah, I agree with you 100% there. And I think maybe that's, again, that's me, you know, because I was blessed, lucky enough to have, as you may have heard, you know, I was lucky enough to have Gary Somerville on the show. And, you know, when you get to have a conversation with not just, you know, not just a, he's not well not an expert in that area but yeah an expert as expert as you're going to know in that area besides besides knowing the person who actually developed the vaccine you know and talking to gary you know what he his feelings on it and his the truths about it and i know there might be you know is there somebody that's uh, uh you know is he biased towards that and and whatever but still i was at such ease with talking to him and learning about it and learning so much that you know maybe that's the key maybe that's maybe, maybe you know i'm just too confident about it all and maybe these guys are right maybe they know something coach maybe they're like they're like oh, this is not just we can't tell them the real truth like people are actually turning into alligators <laughs> you know what i mean maybe there's something crazy out there going on <laughs> they're just not I telling us care. yet <laughs> i don't, I don't care, care. Shoot, shoot me with it i don't care put it in my it's eyeball it gets that's me great. back out in the fields <laughs> That is fantastic. No, you're absolutely right. So the second, so get off of that. But the second piece of news is, um, I don't know if you're a, a golf fan there, Coach, but uh, uh, Adeki Matsuyama won the the Masters this past weekend, and um, he he did so in like really cool fashion. Like he had the lead on the last day, and it was looked like no brainer. And then Augusta was just playing so hard and they have that golf course playing so crazy right now. And you've got to be on your game on the final day and it's pure risk reward where you can hit an approach shot at, at the pin and you could end up six inches from the hole, or you could end up 70 yards from the hole. Like that's how they set this course up. He played amazing, played a blinder, won the masters and he's the first ever uh, Japanese to win, to win the masters. And again, like, that's really cool. That's really cool. But when you think about it, if you're if you're into the game at all, like the Japanese as a uh, as a culture are golf mad. They're golf crazy. They probably per capita love the game of golf more than any. I this could, I could be blowing smoke, but like more than any other culture, they are. They love to play the game of golf, and they've developed so many amazing technologies in golf. And you look at even the sponsorships that are going on in golf. So, you know, Matsuyama winning this thing for the first time ever is like he is going to be a mega star in Japan. In America, if it was some young American that won it, we'd say his name for a couple of weeks. And if you were a golfer, you would say you would you would be like, oh my god, can you remember last year when so and so won that won that tournament? But in Japan, this guy is going to be—he's like twenty-five or twenty-six years old or something. He's going to be 
huge in Japan. So that's so cool. It's actually, if you think about it, this he's just a grinder out there playing golf and he wins a tournament and hopefully it doesn't affect him in a bad way. I think he lives most of his his uh, life, his year in America anyway, but hopefully he just can run run with it and it's not too much, but amazing to be the first Japanese to win the to win the Masters. That's it's so cool. Well, like the um isn't it 10 years since his um first appearance at Augusta when he was an amateur. Yep. That he had been there before. Now, um, you know, it's, to us, again, it's it's like a lot of things. How did you suddenly become so successful 10 years later? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it, it's brilliant. Uh, I love it when new people win um, these major championships and, and the favourites are kind of, you know, put back in their box. And what I like about Augusta is that it seems to be the course that puts a lot of, um, you know, the short odds golfers back in their box. You know what I mean? It, it really does punish them um, sometimes for arrogance, but it's such a massive test uh, psychologically to play there. I mean, I, I love the game of golf for, for the psychology of it more than the sport itself. I've played golf once in my entire life and um, I launched more golf balls into a water hazard. I, I, <laughs> We actually ran out. Myself and my buddy ran out, and we were like, "That's a sign," um, you know. But um, I, I just love the contest. It's fascinating to watch, and you know, you've got players like McElroy, who, you know, they promise so much, but I mean, talk about not delivering. It's um, it's unreal. I, I don't yeah, know, I, I mean, just, I guess, I'm, and if you think about it, even backing off of what you're saying about it, though, is that just again, and I, I think we, I may have talked about him on the show with with Rosin uh, to put a sportsman up there, but that just goes to show you what Tiger Woods really meant to the game of golf because Tiger Woods destroyed that golf course, mm-hmm. and they had to redesign the golf course based on Tiger. Now those redesigns are still in play because the players have are all much stronger and they're the yeah. the younger and they're hitting balls a ton farther than they ever did before. But without Tiger coming across and saying, this course ain't hard, <laughs> you know, and then they changed that course. Like, and now you're right. Since then, it's, it's actually prompted this, like, wave of golfers where, you know, last year you had DJ who won, and he's the number one in the world. But that was almost a pure anomaly because – he's not supposed to win the masters anymore. Now the masters is supposed to be won by, you know, this young, even the, the, the guy who took second Zalatoris, you know, that guy, I, I was watching the, <laughs> I was watching the, uh, uh, the, the, the round on, on TV and Butch Harmon, who's a famous golf coach said, uh, said this, this Zalatoris is having the round of his life. And I only hope he doesn't wake up till tomorrow. It was just a great quote about this kid. He just was like, he just was like, well, I'm here. I'm crazy enough to be here. I might as well do it. Just so you're right. Like to see those stories. Those are two really cool stories about the game of golf. And I think that's what makes golf great. Like you saying about the psychology. And again, the psychology of sports is what it's all about, especially the higher up you kind of get in my opinion with things. But uh, yeah, it's so insane to, to, because these guys are just, solo out there on their own against literally against man-made nature but where derived from literally a, in a guy on a hill saying 
okay, mow the grass that way and then put a hole down there and it's a par six or whatever. You know what I mean? This That's where it came from. And it's the same now as it was then, except for the technology and all. You know, the, te- the, the, the psychology that goes into a golfer is insane with the amount of – they got to grind to get there. Most of those guys are grinding to get there. It is pretty cool to, to watch their stories. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, I know that – I've read a few books on on golfers, you know, biographies, and how they exist before they become household names is fascinating. I mean, literally hitching rides in private jets of other golfers on the tour. You know, it's 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 mad stuff altogether. You know, and um, like the cost of the cost of competing and and you know completing a tour is is absolutely mad. I mean, the support team you have to have, the stuff we don't see. Yeah. Um, you know, all that fascinates me, but like, I, I just think, you know, fresh faces coming up. Um, I think the turnover in golf, you're probably not going to see another Tiger Woods. Um, and, you know, even before Tiger, there were golfers there who were around for just such a long time. Um, you know, it's like Nick Faldo and Greg Norman and all these guys were Arnold Palmer. You know, these were giants of the game. And I'm just looking at the turnover at number one, the number one position now. And it's kind of turning over a lot more frequently. You know, yeah, you going to yeah. see a run of, you know, who, who's going to do a grand slam of golf, you know, in, in you know, even you're, over two years. You're, you're absolutely right. I do. You, it, has there been, you know, anyone that's even, and, and here, here's the deal. Tiger Woods was a freak of nature. I mean, he was brought up, by a not nice <laughs> dad and like he he was like the, the, the he there's definitely there's a nature versus nurture argument going on with tiger woods because he was a talent but that kid was he that his talent was thrust into that position and into into that game because his father forced that talent out of him and what love him or hate him that's what made him what he is and again like you don't not that you would see that story before but now in the next generations now these they, you know are you going to ever see someone who's going to be is doing that again to get to that because at some stage that would have been called you know politically incorrect and he would have been you know earl woods today and earl woods back then were, were, could have been two different people if tiger was the age you know young he might not have been tiger woods were it not for the generation that that was that's what made him like such he was such a freak of nature a specimen tiger in his prime what was isn't there a history of kind of um, fathers in particular, you know, pushing their child prodigies to excel? I mean, you could look at like sort of the Jackson situation. I don't know, does it exist with the um, Williams sisters? And you know, isn't there a history of parents kind of pushing and um, to get people? You know, they they kind of forsake the child's childhood uh, to make them great at one particular thing. And it's uh, as you say, like, are we going to see that? You know, when we have this new kind of politically correct environment, well, not just politically correct, correct environment for children to grow up in, where they're a bit more protected, even from their own families. Um, you know, is it going to be? Yeah, no, that's the question. To... You're right. That is the question, though. It, you know, is it? You know, that's the not. I agree with you. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be going towards. You know, societally, we have to change. Like I, that's the thing. Like you're saying, but you know, what, what we're talking about here is generational and things how getting soft or whatever. But like societally, we have to. We yeah, you just have to. We're 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 better than that. Like that's I I agree with you. We're better than that, and we need to act 
better than that. So if we need to enact laws to make us better than that, then let's enact the laws that make us better than that, like freedom and liberties and equalities and all of this stuff. If we need to, like, if we need to put into law and it's not snowflakery, that's bullshit that, that, that the, you know, the right calls it snowflakery. It's not, not being a snowflake. Look, if we need to, to, if you need to be told to do the right thing, but it's the right thing, then we need, we need to do that. But that's where now it's, now it's this, you're politically incorrect where back then there was such a still that gray. We didn't know what each other was up to. We didn't really care what each other was up to, you know, that, that these people even existed. Will they not exist anymore? Will we lose greatness now? Will there be less greatness? Because we've, we've, like you said, we're now DNA wise and, and nurture wise. We're spreading that hate out of, what they not hate, but that that type of parenting, that hardness, that kind of thing. We're taking that out of the equation now. Will we ever get another Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, somebody like that? Will will, will we will there ever be another one? Because their parents, because there won't be, you know, there won't be Tiger Woods' dad, you know, or the Serena Williams' father, or you know, like all of the ones that you talked about. There wouldn't be those dad. There won't be those dads, you know. So are we actually? Doing is that doing a disservice that we're better than that, that we're better people now? I don't know because what, what I look at is, um, all right, we're looking at the pinnacle, we're looking at the people who you know made it beyond even you know worldwide recognition to actually worldwide icon. Um, and even if you look at those, there have been a few train, you know, I was going to say train wrecks, but I suppose car wrecks is more appropriate. Um, you know, when, when Tiger came off the rails, he came off the rails in style, so. You know, it's how many other child prodigies were being pushed and came off the rails before we got to know them. Um, and is that why we're enacting the laws, not just because of the famous people? But um, I think that, you know, fame will always find its level. So in harsher environments years ago, like, I mean, you're going back to like the Babe Roots and, you know, turn of the century, you know, 18th, 19th century, we, we still talk about athletes who are phenomenal. Um, they had a very different environment from the Michael Jordans and the Tiger Woods. We still talk about them. You know, in 10 years, 20 years' time, we're going to be talking about athletes from now um, who have grown up in a very different environment as well. And they'll still be regarded as great. Um, you know, I mean, I, I just look physically at athletes now, and I wonder if Michael Jordan dropped into... Um, an NBA team as a rookie, no, would he stand out physically? Well, compared to the guys he dropped in with in the Bulls in the eighties. Yeah, um, yeah. So no, we're going to see like records falling, um, physical ability, physical size, uh, pushing those records, pushing the performance. You look at the rugby players now, and you think about the great rugby players of the past, and great rugby players of the future are going to be even bigger faster, stronger, um, and regardless of how they're parented, I think they're going to set a mark. So I think, yeah, remove the, the parent influence if it's negative and allow them to be the best athletes that they can be. Yeah, no, it's a, it, I, I definitely appreciate the, the, you know, the thought there, but it is it, – I agree with you, and I guess you could say, well, there was LeBron James, so your Michael Jordan conversation is out the window because arguably people – I think it's a silly argument to argue that LeBron James is anywhere near Michael Jordan, but 
you know, their, their greatness will be great. And now there is, it's more, again, it was like you talk about, like, you know, you think about the baseball back in the eighties, man, these guys were drinking beers and smoking cigarettes in the dugout and playing professional baseball. You know what I mean? And now they're athletes. Now they're not that they weren't athletes then, but now they're like, you know, they're not doing that anymore. They're, they're, they're taking care of themselves and their bodies. So there's, there's a much bigger understanding of that. I think that's coming along rather than sort of, you know, just going out there and hitting the ball and doing the best you can. And, and, you know, now there's the, the competition is bigger now to get, to get those, to get those spots, isn't it? Is, yeah, you know what I mean? The baseball, I, I'm telling you this, and uh, as a baseball fan, I mean, I love baseball. Um, I think it, it stands up against any sport in the world. I, I can't watch it much anymore. I know these guys are bigger, they're faster, they're stronger, but um, you know, I, I want to see Randy Johnson out there throwing a wild ball. You know, there's no character to the game. Yeah, there's a little bit, but the, it's a. You're right. There's no character. It's, it's it, the most for us. Most I agree with you. Is that not all sports for us, Coach? It, it kind of is, but like, right. <laughs> Um, no baseball personifies it for me because I actually yeah. love baseball. I've got a baseball tattoo on my leg. I love <laughs> baseball pieces, and I watch a baseball game now. And I see the batters. The, the the most annoying thing they can do, as opposed to being utterly obnoxious, which they were in the past. The most annoying is stepping in and out of the box. They step in and out of that batter's box all the time to try to throw uh, the pitcher off. And you, you watch a guy go up to bat, and it could take him ten minutes to kind of foul out. And I'm kind of—he spends most of the time stepping out of the box. And I'm like, I don't—I don't want to watch that. <laughs> I'm sorry, you step in there, you know. Oh, it's so—it's so true. You look at basketball, and basketball is now get the ball into the hands of the of the, your biggest shooter somewhere in the perimeter, and he's going to score, you know, 40, 50 buckets a game. The rebounding is going to happen when it happens, but we're just going to get up and down this basketball court. We're back in the day; those guys were like beating the crap out of each other on the basketball. Like, no, you're not getting in here. And I may be out drinking yeah. every night and I may be out partying all the time and doing drugs I shouldn't be doing and, and having affairs I shouldn't be having and doing all this stuff. You still are not going to cross this free throw line or I'm going to bat you. You know, that's the same. Baseball was the same kind of way. Like, like you had these guys that, like you said, like Randy Johnson was like, no, oh, you're going to step out one more time. Why don't you just take this 101 mile an hour fastball right up against your chin? But I'm not going to hit you. I'm just going to throw yeah. it up against your chin. For, you know, you don't have even, that anymore. <laughs> you know, even some of the greats know, and, and unfortunately, the only time I see them is reminders of when they have passed away. But you look at these great pitchers, and if you stepped out of the box so often, they would just hit you. And they wouldn't care if you were still out of the box. It'd be just like, get in there. I want to play ball. I want to get this over with. And, you know, I've got a bar to get to or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, now they just got to go home. You know, now they got to go take, they got to take their protein injections or whatever. They're doing their wheatgrass shots. Now they go home, you know, you the character's the gone. You got to step out of the box. You got to adjust your gloves. You got to adjust your armband. You got to adjust that elbow protector. You got to dust yourself down. Then you step back in, you have a look. And then you put your hand up to the umpire again. You step back up. It's like, well, somebody just hit him in the ear and give him the base, like, and move on. You know. Do you see that in um, football? Do you see it? Do you American see that? Football. What what changes? Yeah, let's move it over to 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 you now a little bit more and 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 chatting with you. Do you see that in in your sport of of choice here in Ireland? As far as I'm, you know, I, I know, you, like you said, you're a big baseball guy, but you know football is where I know you're from. So do you see that in, in, in American football too, that there's the changes over generationally in, in that way, or because, 
you know, I just watched a, a documentary on my where I come from a town called Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and it, there's actually a great documentary on YouTube. NFL Films did a documentary on a team, a uh, semi-pro team called the Pottstown Firebirds, and I think it was 1969, 1970. Now, I was born in, in 72, so it was just before my age. But you know, I remember growing up and hearing about this, like. Pottstown Firebirds football team. They were like the Philadelphia Eagles, like a minor league system to the Philadelphia Eagles. And if you ever get a chance, watch it. But there were characters. Like this was like literally there, there was a boarding house and the, the coach was paying for – talk about merit. And and Buddy Ryan getting into trouble and and you know knocking you know you knock their head off. Greg Williams knocked their head off. We'll give you a bonus. This guy literally was like, I will give you – pay you – nothing but i'll give you five bucks every time you crack the quarterback in the skull so these guys so that's the way these guys are playing football so it was characters but it was very different what what are the biggest changes you've seen sort of from when you played to what you're coaching now there's a lot i mean there's a lot has changed and the majority of the change is not just good it's actually great so when i started playing there was one um, coaching book in Ireland. And when I say there was one book, there was one copy of one book, NFL the football way. And everything that was coached was coached pretty much out of that, <laughs> would be fair enough to say. So, um, you know, I was, I was talking today uh, to one of my former teammates about, you know, coming on tonight and what am I going to talk about? And it's like, the stories from the old days, and some of us consider them the good old days, but they weren't that good. At one stage, I was playing for the Cork Admirals and we trained on a hockey pitch, which is fine, except for the surface of the hockey pitch had been removed. So what <laughs> was left underneath it was the gravel um, aggregate underlay for an all-weather pitch. So we were training on, on a gravel pit um, that held water, that, and we were training at night under floodlights. And there was literally, we got an hour of floodlights, so we trained as hard as we could and as fast as we could. And then we'd go, the lights would be switched off and we'd go to the car park. Somebody would turn on their car lights and we'd get the tweezers out and start picking stones out of people's arms and legs and whatever you're having yourself. I mean, it was gruesome. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, this was how you, you just did what you had to do. I remember I was picking stones out of um, one kid's arm and somebody walked by me and I saw an injury that they had on the back just behind their elbow on their um, upper arm and they'd hit a stone and the stone was like a cookie cutter and it took out a piece of flesh <laughs> and literally this was uh, about two inches in diameter hole which if you look at the inside of it it was like it wasn't even like grown beef it was like grown turkey that pinky stuff that was just weeping blood it was horrific and it was like that's a day at the office you know <laughs> so we've gone from that to where you know, and the games, um, you know, the mindset in the games wasn't wasn't where it should have been and the focus wasn't where it should have been. And it was a small league and there were, you know, personal, um, you know, people had personal grudges and, you know, grudges took up where they left off because at one point there were five teams in the league and, um, you know, all that stuff is gone. And I think it's good that it's gone. I think it's great that it's gone um, because with that being gone, we're actually taking football more seriously. Like, how seriously are you taking football when you send somebody to practice that way? 
when you're saying, you know, how seriously <laughs> are you taking football when you've got a, like, a, as you were describing, a, a sort of a bounty on, on a quarterback? Um, you know, how, how seriously is it, is it really being taken? I think football is being taken a lot more seriously now. It's improved technically, um, no ends. The, the games, um, the games that take took place within sort of the last 10, 12 years bear no resemblance to, to what went before it. Yeah. Um, on many levels, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, I'd and, love to actually, that's, that's, that's so, like even my situation, which is a very young situation, uh, you know, relatively was, you know, I was, <laughs> I was, I came, came, moved to Ireland, uh, wife, small kid, <clears throat> let's do it, honey, let's go. And, and, you know, did what I did. I came to Ireland and um, <clears throat> I was miserable after about six months. I was so upset. I had a great six months because I was kind of working, but I was like, whatever. And then, you know, I had some money saved up and I was like, I need to adjust anyway. And then, then I realized like, fuck, I, I got, I'm like, 40 years old like i need to i'm with living in my in-laws house i need to provide for a family in a foreign country what the fuck did i do with myself and we it got it was so funny because living with the in-laws and that that whenever there was a conversation that needed to take place between my wife and i we had to go out to the car to have the conversation to, between marie and i and we were out in the car having a conversation about miserable and would you, you know, me being not happy and all this stuff to like her saying, you know, would you just, didn't you, why don't you coach football? You saw that, you saw the ad, you saw the thing or whatever, like, you know, it's here. Why don't you just coach football? It's what, like, even though I'm telling you this because knowing that you're going to be disappearing and gone out of my life, you know, why don't you, it makes you happy. And I know it made you happy in the state. So why don't you go and do this? So I was like, okay. And I looked it up and I Googled it and, and it was still eight years ago, Google, which isn't even what it is now or whatever, but I Googled it and I found the dragons at the time. And, uh, they, you know, the, the head coach at the time or the, the, or the, the owner, I, I don't know, general manager, I'm not sure how exactly it worked, but he called me and said, said, uh, first he said, will you play? And I said, no, I'm not going to play. I'm like, that's not what I do anymore. I said, but I would willing to help out whatever, whatever you can do. And that's how it always starts. Right. I'd be willing to help out, especially as American, you suddenly already get yep. thrust. You automatically get thrusted. This guy is a fucking God and knows everything. And I never claimed to be that, but I always wanted to learn more. And I, and I, it actually fed my thirst for knowledge down the line in the, over the last eight years. But back then I, I was, I knew what I shit. I had, I have a career. I have a bit of a, of a past with it and, and a history with it, whatever. So yeah, let me come and help out. And then he was like, well, it's actually funny because the head coach just left and he can't do it anymore. So I'm going to be the new head coach and whatever you can do to help me. And I showed up on, and he was like, meet at the field hockey club. And I was like, okay. So we met at the field hockey club, but there was no, they weren't practicing on a field hockey pitch. I was showed I, the, the grass was up to my, our, almost up to our knees, and I was showed in a corner of section of this. It, it looked like it was just next to the road. Like, it was just this little pitch of grass next to the road, 60 yards maybe. And in the woods, I'm doing a walk around. They're showing me a deep buried in the woods. There was a one-man tackling dummy from the 70s or 80s, and there was a two-man uh, blocking dummy from the 80s. The, back in the in the woods, buried in the woods, and I'm like, "What the fuck did I get myself into? What is going on here? This is insanity. I've never. I'm coming from 4G pitches, floodlights, 
you know, even with mm-hmm. seven-year-olds. Like, you know what I mean? I'm coming from seven-year-olds, and we got 15 coaches on the field, and there's, like, Retriman, and these kids are doing that. And I got a quarterback who's got a crazy arm and a running back. I, I, my, I had a, a girl who was uh, my defensive end who was sick, like, ridiculous until she became 10 or 11, and then hormones kicked in, and she did not want to play football anymore. But anyway, like, I came here to this. And then, you know, literally within eight years, that team that was on that – pitch i i was i was having the lineman fire out of a shoot and i was like i i brought a t- a, a, a a duvet cover from my bedroom and i pulled it i was <laughs> pulling it across with another guy and i was having offensive lineman fire out low fire out low fire out low with a with a sheet with a bed sheet you know what i mean and i'm like this is pretty cool then i then it, it flipped at me like <laughs> this is pretty fucking cool like wait a second is it this it's this diverse, like it's so diverse. Like you said, if you were p- playing on these pitches, you know, it, literally it was concrete. You know what I mean? It was like concrete. And I even remember having a meeting. We, you know, it got me, it, I became so enthralled that again, eight years later or whatever, this team was, well, seven or eight years later, this basically this team or the, the origination from this same team was playing on a, you know, a 4G pitch in at the you know the home of Leinster and they were playing in a national championship game win lose or draw to see where they came from and the stories are all the same like when you talk to the teams that won the Belfast you know if you if you would only know where we came from so you talk to them about their history and you think about the history but it's only been like what do you think like as it has it been like the last 10 years I mean when I first started you weren't even really doing any coaching at that time right you were just kind of doing your blog and doing your thing yeah, I'd, um, I'd kind of moved. I was transitioning, I suppose, is the best way to put it, between um, club football with the University of Limerick Vikings and sort of the national thing hadn't kicked in yet. So there was just a, a kind of couple of years there that was right when, when you arrived on. So um, just to let you know, I trained on that uh, I trained on that pitch you were talking about, not the pitch, at the side of the road. Yeah. We went up from, we went up from uh, Cork and Belfast and everywhere for... Um, an Irish, the all-star team or the league national team at that time. And we had a training session there. Um, I know exactly where you're talking about. Um, and, you know, that wasn't the worst place we ever trained. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, it was look, pretty darn good when you look at it. <laughs> you know, but it, I mean, there was, a t- there was a point where, you know, the guys who were playing really good football and it was really good football being played um, early on. And the rest of us were just trying to catch up. So you had like... Um, you know, you had the Carrick Fergus Knights and, and the Dublin Rebels. They were in a bunch of Shamrock Bowls, sort of in the early two thousands. And like they were, they were good teams. And they, when they met against each other, they were, you know, great competitions. But then you had everybody else who were kind of fighting to get a piece of that from um, a much lower position. And there were the interesting stories come in. You know, that's where, you know, sending uh, at a practice, not having enough equipment, so you know, you duct tape a helmet without a face cage onto a kid's head because you don't have a chin strap to send him out to play quarterback in a scrimmage. <laughs> that stuff was happening. No, I didn't do that. Just so you know, I don't want to get my coaching license revoked. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't help that the kid was called Cabbage. And, um, you know, that was his nickname. And, you know, Cabbage was sent out with a basically a bucket on his head um, from the 1970s, duct taped. Um, and, you know, we were all doing what we could to catch up. But, there, you know, there just came a point where structures grew you know, um, teams invested in sort of their players, their coaches, and, you know, you, you go through a lot of changes and transitions at, at younger stages in every club and even clubs out there know have to understand that. 
you know, there's changes there and it's tough. Um, and they're doing what they need to do as well. And who knows in, you know, seven, eight years time. I mean, I, I started the Cork Admirals with uh, with John Stokes in, in 2000. They were in their um, first Shamrock Bowl, I think it was in 2007, you know, and then they won the Shamrock Bowl a couple of years ago. So, you know, it's, it's out of those training pitch, training matches on gravel pitches and all sorts of stuff that you had to overcome. And overcoming that stuff builds a team. And you know that. Yeah, did it need, like, that's, and again, it, we talk about how it's changed and how how much it's transitioned. So, and now it's the same kind of, you know, thing. And I, I read in an interview with Mike Krzyzewski, um, you know, Coach Krzyzewski with Duke, the bas- college basketball team, just an absolute stalwart or whatever. He's 72 years old. And, you know, there was an interview with him where he talked about as a coach, what what is what changes what 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 not just what do you see uh, uh, but but what changes in you as a coach what needs to change in order for you to remain relevant at 72 years old and his thing was the communication has to change the communication when when I started coaching to the communication to the players now is the one thing that has to change but it, it always was for a coach because as a coach you're the you're, you're the psychologist of the team. Like you're, that's, that's part of what you, your role as the head coach of that organization is to understand the psychology of the players. And now you, the, the football stuff, you have assistant coaches, you, you put your trust in them. You're going to get this done. We're going to talk about it. You're going to get this done, but you know, they're, they're going to report back to you with, with, with the football and that better work. And I'm going to watch it. That better work. But that means that my job as the head coach of that team, which was so time consuming, was the psychology part of it. And again, it's that risk, that that yin and the yang. I wouldn't want it any other way. But, you know, like you said, it's that love. It was that old school love and passion for the game, even though it was so misguided by throwing a duct tape around a kid's head, you know, for a face mask could call him cabbage. That passion, though, for the game is what, like you were saying about how the admirals kind of went away and came back, but that was that passion that brought it back. It was that yeah. old school passion that brought it back and they brought in new school players, you know, because the old school players aren't going to make it. There's a couple of them still around even, which makes this, makes the sport in this country. So amazing. There's still a couple like Jesus. I, I, I was coaching with Stevie moles and, and that guy was 50. Like I told my, my folks, back home you know my other coaches and my friends back home i'm i got a guy he's like 50 on my football team does he play well yeah (laughs) like yeah because i need him because i don't have enough bodies and he's a great substitute and he goes in on third down and he he, he's the mouthiest fucker in the world but talk about respect and it's that passion that's driving today's game a lot of that way in the country when you look at you know who's sort of around the league and pushing this and who's in those positions of power now which is great because it allows allows things like this irish national team to happen and the cork admirals to come in and win and these stories to sort of happen now at least from my point of view from what i see which makes it really an amazing thing pre-pandemic i would say the sport in, in general in this country was on a roll right Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you look at, you know, you go back and you look at a team who came up from very challenging uh, conditions. I mean, there was the Belfast Bulls and then there was, 
you know, the Belfast Trojans um, came along and kind of grew from that. And, um, you know, to dominate the sport in, in a very short period of time, when you look at it, I mean, they faced all, we all faced the same basic challenges, you know, when it comes to football in Ireland, you've got player resources, financial resources, venues, uh, coaching resources, and, you know, it's how you overcome those. And, um, you know, we've had some, some great teams. Like, I mean, the Rebels, probably the dynasty team who've done it over a longer period of time. But the dominating team in most recently, Belfast Trojans, amazing organization to watch. I mean, they stack up as a football team against, you know, any other club um, or sports team in, in, in this country, you know, on this island. Um, yeah. You know, when they show up, they they look like a team. When they go out in the field, they play like a team. And, um, you know, they tick all the boxes. And you look at the, you know, your club, the Panthers, um, phenomenal coaching staff there. You know, there was a time when the coaches on the Panthers sideline that were put together by Coach Mack. I mean, that coaching staff is amazing. Um, they would have been all the coaches in the country at one stage, numerically. Yeah. You know, I know you've got them on the sideline. Um, you know, these are the, the fantastic changes. But the one thing, we're talking about a pandemic and you're talking about, you know, what's it, up to that point, it's the point of the pandemic, the sport was in the best place it probably has ever been in. Um, number of clubs, functioning clubs, um, you know, the board, you know, fantastic uh, national team ticking boxes and, and, you know, getting it done. And... No, we've got a pandemic and we're going to come out at the other side of the pandemic and nobody's kind of sure. There's a little bit of uncertainty there. But what you were talking about, you know, this spirit, this uh, we're going to get it done attitude previously. I mean, that exists. That's still there. That's something we're going to have to tap into Yeah. at the other side of this. You know, we don't know what we're going to face. We don't know availability of pitches. We don't know how many players are going to say, look, I've reconsidered and, you know, or maybe even the two years that we've been out of action would have been the two last years of their football career. So you might be missing a bit of experience in your clubs. Um, but have no doubt, it's, <laughs> it's infectious. Football is infectious. And there's enough people out there with the bug that football is going to happen on this island. And we're not going to have to hit the reset button. We're not going back to the Stone Age. You know, we have the structures in place. The structures are pretty strong. Um somebody steps out, somebody will step in to fill it. And that's, that's what's good about football before the pandemic. There were solid structures and solid teams. Yeah. I mean, even when you, when again, all tying this back in, but when you look at, at, at the, at a national program, even, you know, two years nationally speaking, you know, in a lot of sports, especially one like American football, you would think is, is a lifetime. So, so the, the faces that are now going to be competing for roles in a national program post COVID could be extremely different from the faces who were there pre COVID. And you didn't, it just going to, it's just going to happen. You know what I mean? It's just, we didn't get to see time take its toll on some and, and, and push the others and, and get the, the youngsters up. You didn't get to see any of that. So now, you know, for one exciting thing to think about on a national level, as much as it could be good, bad, or, or, or ugly as far as the, a club level is concerned, 
you know, but from a national level, one thing's for sure, your, your roster is going to change, right? Oh, like 100%. <laughs> but here's the thing. Our roster changed between the game we played in Navin, okay, and mm-hmm. the game we traveled to Belgium. So yep. um, if I were to ask you, could you put a figure on, so we, we suited up 45 players in each. So 45-man squad um, in Navin, 45-man squad in Belgium. How many players did we utilize in that time? So over the two squads, if you were to say how many players were utilized? So over a total of a total possible of 90 being everybody was different, right? If everybody's different, we got, we're hitting 90. We're hitting 90. Everybody wasn't different, right? But yeah. there was only... But there was only about twelve months between the two, so you know, I, I definitely you, you're, I, I, but I do think I think well again, were there were there some athlete? He's an athlete here. Positional change there, movements that were made around as well because you had that time to co- sort of assess from here to here. Well, now, you know, that, that's what I think. That's exciting, and I it, like. You're right. I wouldn't have thought that there would have been that much of a turnover, changeover between one game and the next because I just thought the faces that I saw for the most part looked the same, but the personnel might have been different. You're right. Let me give you you the number. We had had 62 players over those two squads. That's awesome. I mean, that's great. And the, um, the age factor in that was lower across the board. So we had guys retired after... Um, after Navin, um, we had guys who made it through the selection process and, you know, forced their way onto the squad and forced their way onto the field between the two games. Um, you know, the turnover is real. And, you know, it's... it's So, we're used to turnover on the national team. Um, we're used... We have a solid foundation there, even though, you know, there's turnover, there's also a retention... You know, we didn't go to 90 new players, you know. It wasn't mm-hmm. that. And the, the coaching staff and the systems that they used, the coaching staff were fantastic, and the systems who they used turned those new players into Wolfhounds, into squad players, into team players who were, who were effective and used. So, you know, it's a challenge. Um, we don't know what the faces are going to be like, but we have the tools and we have the wherewithal to turn them into Wolfhounds. Um, and that's kind of our role. The, I guess, if I were to look at it, like there's even after the Belgian game, you know, three players hung up their boots and told me about it directly after the game. And that's a natural progression. That's the way it should be. You know, if you're if you're a top player, to be, and these were top players, top guys who I'd seen play for a long, long time. And their last game was a win in Belgium. I mean, that's awesome, you know. But oh yeah, and, and that's you know that's it. Like I mean, we're we're you know we're not like a professional team where you know we're they're going to go for a contract somewhere else or you know they're going to go do something else. They gave everything to the sport. That they reached the pinnacle. Job done. Yeah, and you know we that's and the same thing happened after Navin. So. There's kind of a pattern there of turning over, um, which is fine. But it's only fine if you've got the structures in place, you know, to take people in. If you're actually actively looking for people, which we always are, looking for coaches, looking for players, 
um, improving on ourselves, you know, studying up, seeing what's out there, opposition-wise, you know, we're in a good place. And one thing that's interesting, and you, you're talking about who, um, you know, that, that the sport is in good hands at the moment. You know, when we, we came back from Holland and our first training session back as a national team when we were doing review, we were shut down. We were allowed to have that training session and then the program was shut down. And it mm-hmm. was shut down for almost two years. Mm-hmm. So that was a practice session for the pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. like we had nothing and we were able to come back um, and, and come back stronger. So we learned from our mistakes. We still um, we still had you know information. We know what it's like to, to travel abroad and play. We've done it. We know what it's like to play at home. We've done that. We know what it's like to turn a kid who hasn't been on the national program before into a starter. We've done that. We've got the tools, and clubs have the tools as well in their own in their own way locally. You know, um, again, looking at your own club, looking at the Belfast Trojans, the Cork Admirals, uh, Dublin Rebels. You know, um, even some of the um, younger clubs playing down the divisions. You know, they've been through this. They 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 know what it takes to put a team out there on the field and there will be challenges but you know we're going to get teams playing football hopefully we're going to get teams playing football this year um, but yeah we're not going to start from scratch we're not going to be writing everything off and it's it's not going to be I don't think the train wreck everybody is kind of worried about so here's my here's the only uh, uh, it's not even a political question it's just a specific question because I, I, I know exactly how it was done, but and, and I don't even know if, if the answer is anyone here, but do you have how do how do you how do you handle the haters? So like like when you obviously I was there when you picked when those players were picked for the, for all of those teams. Um you know, unfortunately the 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 ones who suffered the most from this uh national thing, but it's also the ones who are got the most amount of playing time are the are the youngest kids in the sport, and that's something that uh, we'll we will definitely talk about you know next here is is get going young and g- mm-hmm. continuing the, the the way you're gonna get them is going young but um you know how do you handle the ones who do you have many detractors that that have uh, that come and say? Like, I don't appreciate the way you've run this because it's hard as hell to pick these guys. And I know how good the process was and I know how strong the process was for you to pick, pick those players. But do you get, do you get those that kind of cry foul? Do you get the anti-vaxxers? You know what I mean? Do you get, there's gotta be anti-vaxxers and how do you handle it? Like how how, that's gotta, it would piss me off so much. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to defend it. No, you, you, there's no comparison to an anti-vaxxer and somebody who's upset at either not being picked themselves or not having a, a clubmate picked. I mean, that's a valid, that's a valid thing. And you know, when when somebody comes to you with, you know, expressing dissatisfaction, let's put it that way, um, it's not it's not hating me, you know, yeah. um, but it's. It's understandable. I mean, there's disappointment. There's all kinds of emotions. I mean, people get themselves, you know, when you when you go out to a tryout or you go out and you've attended three sessions or four sessions, and when it comes to, you know, you're, you're called to have a conversation with your positional coach, your coordinator or the head coach, and you're getting the bad news, um, 
you don't envision, envisage that in all your time in the squad. You're seeing yourself as on the bus. And that emotional flip, um, that's a real thing and has to be respected. Um, you know, and the best way to respect it is to be honest. And you've got to be honest with yourself first and that you are actually making a decision for all the right reasons. That there's logic and, if possible, statistics. And it can't just be that gut feeling. You know, it can't be, I, you know, I don't think. You, you've got to be able to tell somebody, you know, why they didn't make the grade this time. And you've got to be able to tell them what they need to do to make the grade going forward, how to improve. If you can't do that, you're not an actual coach. <laughs> I think in, in, the, in, in the GEA, they call people selectors. These are people who, ju- who literally just select people on performance to play for their county or whatever it was. That, that's kind of going out as a system. We're not that. We're coaches. So, and a lot of the time, and it's tough, a lot of the time, it's got to do with scheme. When you get to, like, you know, the people who can obviously play football and you could throw a blanket over, you know, 60 guys, but you've got to pick 45 of the guys. And a lot of the time it can come down to the scheme isn't being played in one place and it's being played, you know, this other player has used a similar scheme or is used to zone blocking or is used to whatever it is. And, and that just shows in the training. Um, but we'll do everything we can for anybody who's come to one of our sessions or three of our sessions or five of our sessions to push them to make it back on. So we had a combine. The last football activity I was involved in was over um, 13 months ago. It was a combine where we got in a a sports science company to actually take the measurables for people. And that wasn't just you set this time in these specific measurables, you set this bar, um, you didn't make it. So there was a process there where, you know, feedback was was given, um, interest was shown, what you need to do, what you need to improve on, um, you know, football-wise, you know, even looking at people who set really high standards, you look at them and say, yeah, they're, they've set a really high athletic standard, um, we want to see them at a training session. The next step down, they've set a really good standard. We need to see what they're like football-wise. The plan was to go out and scout them and to um, get footage from them, but obviously the pandemic stepped in. Now, we're still, we still have all those facts and details about these uh, players who came out and tried out. So we're, that's still an active process. It's just taken you know, two years longer to get to the end point. But with everybody, you know, there's... A, there's facts there there's a clear picture of expectation when you show up we're going to measure you for this if you set a certain standard you're going to be invited to a camp if you are below that standard we're going to scout you if you're below that standard again um we'll work with you to to try and improve that standard nobody's kind of just told go away and at the yeah same it's, time, it's uh, really, you're right and i saw that firsthand like you know it, it, <laughs> completely understand that I, I you know and you do wonder again when i put on my you know american coaching goggles like that how many how many guys would i see how many how many staffs coaching staffs would i see that same philosophy from 
you know, in that regard, which is only going to make it, the sport grow in that, you know, that way better by, by, like you said, like, okay, well, let's, that's a good question. Let me think, let me look at myself and f- f- come to, why did I, that decision made that you weren't good enough to be on this team? Okay. That decision made were for these reasons, you know, and you're always keeping yourself in check, you know, it's kind of like blockchain yeah. technology. You can, if, if one person flips the switch, then you have to go look at it, you know, and see what's wrong with this guy before you can put that switch back down. So, I mean, you, you do, it's a good system sort of to, you know, you should be proud of it. You should be proud of what you built, like, and, and what you're doing. And, and I, I certainly am proud to see what, what you've done with it for sure. And I'm, I, I couldn't be more impressed with, you know, how the, how the team is run and, and the, the, how much the team wants to play for, you know, and I know it's not just for you, but in that regard, like when when you when you are in the middle of it, and then you take a step back and kind of look at at you know how your players react because you are you're the the psychiatrist, the psychologist. You're you know you're the one at three o'clock in the morning when they need to talk to you for reasons that have nothing to do with football. You're the first one to tell them tell them to call you. And you know some of the strongest relationships that I have in this country were guys that I coached which is weird. You know what I mean? Like, you know, think about like how, how that, how that's worked. Most of them are out of the game now, but some few are still actually in the game. And I consider them like my good friends, even though I'm 10 years older than them because of the game of, of football, you know? So, so I totally think that what you're doing is just is really good. And you should be super proud of yourself. Buzz actually has a question in here for, for both of us. Uh, and it's what player or players would you consider your greatest coaching achievement? And for me, I'll just take it first really quick. Cause I'm probably going to steal your answer anyway, or at least part of it uh, is that, is that, for me, it's not even about the football. I, I could, I, I honestly, and and that was like I coached at, at many different levels of of the sport of football. And before I moved to Ireland, within this unique circumstance, I coached uh, a team of kids from seven years old to eleven years old before they went to middle school football. Um, I coached that team, and it was very similar, actually, to my my experience here. Our first, I think, the first year we didn't win a game, and then the next year the first half of this year we lost every game and then we won every game, but you know, but anyway, coming, coming to, to, to see that and do that. But for me, it doesn't even have to do with football. Like I like for me, it's about the relationships and the, the knowledge that those kids are good people now. And even now in Ireland with coaching that the guys that, that, you know, I think I meant the most to, I know that. And I see that in what they do and they still reach out to you now and they still talk to you about things now. Some of them after years, just, you know, to message, say, Hey coach, you know, just, just chatting to say hello, you know, hope everything's all right. Those kind of things like that is what I'm most proud of is, you know, being able to judge character and help character evolve through a sport that has nothing to do with the sport. The X's and O's are what the X's and O's are. The winning, I love the sport. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, but I think it's got to be similar for you because you're like, you're a football, American football coach with a baseball tattoo. You know what I mean? It's not really about that. I've got a football tattoo too. I'm just you know. saying, you know what I mean? No, you know what I mean? It's almost at, at, at some level, does it become, you know, the sport is, is, is specific to the way you do coach. But for me, it was, it's more, you know, I'm, I couldn't be happier with from past years, the kids that I caught that are now like 
doing much better than I'm doing for myself in working in Wall Street and, and, you know, doing these amazing things. And they're just amazing. I I still look at them as eight year olds and they're just, they're adults now and they're, they're, they're grown men and women. And like, for me, that's the coolest thing about it. And even with, with this team, you know, or with this coming to Ireland, it's the same philosophy. I think that I, I, I enjoyed the most, even though it was adults and adult philosophies, it's still like, having like the the relationships that you built with these people that are like, they're such good people. And you wanted to, hopefully you had something to do with something positive in their life because of American football. That's, that's, that, that is, is all, it's not any specific person. It's that guy. Well, this is like, I was going to say, like you, you nearly want to re rephrase the question because, you know, I don't consider any players my achievement. You know, it's, it's kind of like what they've achieved is, is amazing to me. And what I enjoy the most is sort of, you know, you just get moments where you step back and you just smile. And it's like you're smiling for, you know, the players that you work with. Um, one of those moments was for me in Holland when I looked, you know, the, the Dutch had all this money invested in the game and they'd bought in this company that would cover club helmets with this sort of a wrap that you would get on, on cars, you know, this vinyl wrap. And they offered it to us as an option and I, I just shot it down straight away. Because one of the things I loved about that team was there were 16 clubs represented that day. And I look at that and I go, that's an achievement. And I'm looking at guys that you'd expect to see from the Rebels and the Vikings and the Trojans. And then you look at the other club colors and you're going, my God, man, you, you know, you you really fought your way onto this team, Um, (laughs) you know, from the lower divisions. And I love that. Um, I think when we played that, um, the Greendale Falcons, that under 20s team, um, I look at what they achieved and I get a, a great deal of, of satisfaction in looking at that. Um, they were a phenomenal bunch of young men. And, you know, it's probably one of my favorite football moments is right there. Um, I think that's great. I coached um, youth football in the Cork Admirals and some of those guys are still like one of them is on the national program at the moment. Um, so, you know, that's just, you know, something you stand back and look and say, wow, that kid. But I don't turn back and go, wow, look what I did for that kid. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. you're part of the experience that they're having, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful feeling, you know, when you're on the sideline and, and something good is happening, or as you say, and, and this is something that we've not been very good at promoting as a sport, but the caliber of players and people that we have involved in our sport is amazing. I mean, amazing. You've got, you know, people who work phenomenally hard in tough jobs and succeed in them, regardless of what field it is, whether it's, you know, medicine, construction, um, you know, from science to you name it, we've, we've got it. And the amount of successful people involved in our clubs amazes me. And that's what I look at. it, And I think that's an achievement of the sport. Um, that we all play a part in. It turns out great. So that's going to bring me to the final, my final question for you about, about football. Anyway, we're we're conversation topic here is the future. And I was uh, just a, a a funny story, not even a funny story, but I I was at at some point uh, involved in, in, you know, looking into a youth building a youth program in uh, in the league and and those and that 
stuff. And again, I come from an American perspective. So my thoughts about, you know, how it should work and govern itself, it should be under, you know, my whole thing was there. Yeah. Go young. And they're like, how young? We'll go as young as you can. Like, go, go young, go nine, eight, seven years old. I know you're not going to get enough of them, but go as young as you can and get into their ear because it, it doesn't matter about the kids. It doesn't matter about the kids. Just like it doesn't matter about the sport. It doesn't matter about the kids. When you're talking about youth, you're talking about their parents and you're trying to engage passion in, in a sport and nothing engages passion like parents rooting for their kids. And when you can put the fat kids out on the field and you can put the little tiny kids out on the field in American football and all of the sort of reasons that the teams, when they market themselves as this niche, they, they you know, these teams say you can be this guy or you can be that guy. There's no perfect specimen for American football. Th those are marketing techniques that teams use when, especially when they're starting up new, right. And fresh, like doesn't matter what you look like, come out, we'll find something for you to do. You know, that whole process, when you, if you think about taking that back a few generations and now having parents, and again, it was, you know, the, the thought was, you know, we'll do it this way, this way it's going to be done. That's fine with me. It doesn't matter just how, what I, my thought was about it. My plan was about it. But the, the, the irony to that kind of is, is that, you know, the youth, the, the teams that they decided to go and target, you know, whether we have, we're happy about it or not, but they're, they're, it was younger than it was previous. And that kind of screwed up, you know, what was going on at a national level. And I under, you know, that if we take that out of it, we just look at this age group and we look at yeah. teams that put, put clubs that put teams together. And now this is just from my personal knowledge of this. And I, and, you know, is that the way the sort of hierarchy went at the club that I was at, the club level that I was went, it went away and a certain way. And the fellow who took over, the coach who took over after me, um, and, and I will have him on the show. And then I, I you know, I tr talk about honesty and doing that stuff. But uh, the reality was, you know, he was just the most eager at the time. And I didn't want it. I wanted the transition to be as smooth as possible. And I knew he was going to be something. I knew it. I knew it. That's why I brought him there. That's why I, I talked to him, you know, when I, we didn't even know each other and we started having these conversations I'm like this guy, like this, he's, he's clued in, you know what I mean? He's clued into this. And I think that this, you know, and love him or hate him, you know, he, he took over the team, he took over the club and now he's, he has the last thing that he's been involved with. I mean, he's still the head coach of the club, but was these kids. And I had these conversations with him now and afterwards. And he's like, dude, I don't even care about the senior team. And he does. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to people yeah. out there to listen, but like, like he's like, I don't, uh, that, that, the only way that the, that the senior team is going to be what it's going to be is if I can feed the senior team with these kids because these kids are unbelievable. These kids give you so much passion and love for the sport, and they may not know what they're doing, but they're only, you know, how old are they, 16, 17? Is that what they're at now, 17 years of age? Yeah, you know, 16, they're, they're only 17. 17 years of age, Coach, and – they're getting it and they're learning so quick because, yeah, yep. that's what they're going to learn quick at that age. And they're learning so quick. He's like, and all I need to do is tell them how good they are. All I do is, is tell them I, I, it's so much joy. It brings him so much joy because uh, when you're coaching that, you know, at that sort of mentality level, like for, for, for me, it's the seven, eight, nine year olds in, in America, because that's when you first find your love for the game, you know, here it's now it's younger and they're finding their love for the game. And, the flip side of that is that you get their parents 
because they're minors. So their parents are still bringing them. Their parents are like, wait a second, what's going on with this thing? My kid wants to play American football. And then they talk to you and then they come to every practice and they're there for every practice watching their kids play practice there every day, every, every time they practice, they come and watch them. And now they're involved. And now they're like, they want to help. And now like, what can we do? And maybe can we raise some money or can we, you know, put something together or can I bring, you know, even if it's, I'm going to bring cupcakes to the, to the, end of every game or i'm going to bring fruit to the end of every game that grassroots is there and he yeah. couldn't be happier so you know it, it would behoove the country and clubs around the country not to and i know it's done at a few other places like you're saying in cork they're doing the same thing i honestly feel like those are going to be the clubs that in the future are going to shine from this. If they invest their money into the youth programs, they're going to shine from this because that feeder system is going to work eventually. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's an obvious, um, it's an obvious benefit. I mean, but there shouldn't be a benefit. They should all be about the kids. I mean, it's a, when I say it's a benefit, you can nearly call it a byproduct because what you get back from watching kids play any sport. So, you know, whether it's, you know, um, minor football in GAA, minor hurling or underage teams. Um, you know, I worked with the GAA for a long time and we used to get um, probably our greatest enjoyment of hosting the primary school finals for the county of Cork. <laughs> so there'll be, there'll be like li literally weeks and weeks of finals taking place during the day and all these kids playing their heart out. And, uh, you know, that's just phenomenal. But hard part with American football is we don't have we don't have the structure that other sports do to bring a person from the sort of five, six, seven years of age. They're not going into a pathway at that point. We're kind of working backwards. We're working from the top down. We're working from the senior player and we're trying to install something for the juvenile player. And that's how we have to do it because that, let's face it, that's how our clubs are set up. You're right. But that's, I have a disagreement with you there in that my philosophy about it is it shouldn't, it should all be under the banner of obviously American football Ireland, which is the governing body of the sport in this country. It should all be under that banner, but it shouldn't be ruled by those, by that board. The, the, the youth football in this country should be started by guys who want to start youth football now the coaching process should be good they should still be going through the co can you imagine a father a nine-year-old kid's father who wants to coach football doesn't know a thing about it but you have to go to this level one course first and and learn these basics about that sport and then they get it and their kid is 10 years old nine years old you're you're, you're so, so, and the people who govern that body should be completely different. I'm not saying they shouldn't be good people. They need to be, but they need to have, it needs to have its own, be able to run itself with its own passion underneath it. Otherwise, you're always going to have the problem that you're talking about. It's always going to be about the club first, unless it's, it's not ruled by the same people. Now they can have a board member and all those things, but the structure needs to be completely separate, not, not team oriented, not it's obviously parochial. I understand that it should be parochial because, but, but more like the Leinster shootout is going to happen on this, on these days. And I, I'm, I'm even like, it's not even about the place. You teach all the kids the same place. All the kids should have, it should be uniform. And that should be taught from the, the defensive coordinator of the national program should be the one who says, okay, well, there's nine-year-olds. You know what we need to show? These are what we need to get them to do first. 
this is what I yep. need th from them to do that. So there's still involvement and still growth into that program. It's still directly connected, but it's it's separate in the the mentality of it because if you have passion at that level that can go out to the parents and say, because when I moved here, it was always, oh, there's too much for them to compete with. There's too many other sports for these kids to compete with. And part of that is true, but you're not, I don't, we don't need a team for every school. We don't need a team for every primary school at all. We need to put a team together. Uh, we need to put four teams together in Dublin. You know what I mean? The, in the yeah. surrounding area to have a shootout. We can do that. Well, now, the, the equipment will be different. We need to get the equipment, but that's what I, that's why I think a separate, a fully separate situation needs to be put together of people that want to do, if there are people that really want to do it to, to govern the, the sport at that level. But I think I wasn't disagreeing with you. Like, and I don't think you're actually disagreeing with me. Maybe I didn't put it. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Like, I think it was just, a, what we have is just this block of, of, of senior teams. And, and it's trying to engineer enough space for youth football to flourish. But we can't follow, like you say, we can't follow the mold of a senior team. So we mightn't even be able to follow the same type of game. They might be playing a completely different game that's more akin to, let's say, a flag football format at a certain age where, you know, you're playing a, a tackle version of five-a-side. Um, you know, it could be six aside, seven aside, whatever it takes. And as you say, it might be a case where, and I've always, I've always thought this, like at that age, you don't want the kid in Dublin at 9, 10, 11, 12, going all the way up. I mean, at what age do you stop? But you don't want the kid in Dublin to have to travel to Cork for a game of a weekend. Nope. You, you want him to have games in his neighborhood every yep. week that he can go play on Saturday at... 11 o'clock at, you know, this patch of grass at the side of the road in Lucan, we're going to meet up, we're going to play, um, you know, four football games between five teams or whatever it is. And the games are going to last a certain length of time and so on. And, and that's how you engage kids. They want participation. But you don't need to impress. The, my thing is you just need the kids to fall in love with the sport. That's not. Yep. That, you don't need to impress that on the kids. You need to impress that on their parents. Their parents have to be the ones who trust you to say, you know what, I'm driving this kid an hour and a half into the fucking middle of the country for a shootout because he loves to play football and there's 20 kids there or there'll be 40 kids there that love to play football and he's going to have the best two and a half hours of his life and we need to make it so it's the best two and a half hours of his life and he loves to play the game. I mean, you think about, talk about the inclusivity that you're using at a national level when you should be the most exclusive of all and that's not how you philosophize it. To, to now take that down to a youth level and say, look, this is, this is about, we, this sport is so much fun and you, you see so much bad stuff, but look at all these cool guys that, that didn't do it. And you can get more involvement from the, the older, maybe vets that want to get into coaching. A lot of them have kids. A lot of these yep. old vets that are retiring are retiring with kids that are five, six years old. You know, and that's why I'm like, I know that we can get them. I know that we can, if we do it right, we can get them down there because if you took your philosophy from the top and we kept again you know the coaching needs to be uniform i'm not talking i'm i'm want to separate things because i want to separate you know sort of how the fundraising gets done and where the where the 
prioritization happens because at an AFI level, at a full level, your prioritization is you're pulled in many different directions to prioritize something. It's it was getting club football to where it needed to be got. It was getting rid of maybe some some old school and new school philosophy coming in at a board level, whatever it was. They you know they were changing things around, and then it was okay. We we got this running smooth. There was always this groundswell of national team, national team, national team, and not only did the national team come about, but it succeeded at a very young early part in its career, which is which is just proof that it was worth that it was worth doing this and it was working and it was putting it together. But there's so many there's so many thoughts there that how do you now prioritize, you know, the sort of cracking that kids. Now you got to crack the kids. You got to crack. And I think that if you have a if you treat it that way separately, it's that part. But the coaching is all involved. So you're you're you know that's the beauty of it is that you're the guy who's going to teach the course. <laughs> That's amazing to the new coaches that are going to be teaching the nine-year-olds, you know, so it's all going to be feeding up to all the penultimate goal for a nine-year-old can be, do you, you know, that these guys played for their country. They played for their country. And in America, you know, it's very different because there's so many people in America and Ireland. It's like, you got a shot. <laughs> you have a shot yep. to play a sport on an international level for Ireland. And it's not even – it's a full island sport too where it's a fully – it's not the it's not the north and the republic. We're all playing under the same banner here. And you got a shot, as good a shot as anybody. Do you have that same shot when you're – if you're, you're, you know, playing rugby? No way. You got that Thank shot you. here. So that's where – if you can instill that into them – that my, that, and have them have fun and the parents say, my kids are loving the sport. How much money do you want? Because that's what's going to happen. That's what, that's what the groundswell is for tearing your college is all the kids want to play rugby at tearing your college. You know what I mean? Like, and the parents, whatever we need to do to get our kids up to that level, can that happen at a, at a youth level? I think it can, but may, maybe I'm just, it's pie in the sky for me. Well, to here's, think the, here's the other thing, right? And, and you were talking about a shot. So, you know, we've partnered up, um, American Football Ireland has partnered up with Rod Woodson's um, foundation, Hope True Football. Amazing stuff. A big part of their push is, is youth-oriented. They want to not, they're not there as a factory to turn out football players. They, they want to turn out, like we were talking about, and talking about achievements. They want to turn out, you know, good people, uh, well-rounded people, well-rounded individuals. And there's talk about camps coming over and the camps will be, age specific and they'd be excited to have a camp a youth football camp and they'd have you know the perfect coaches from um from high schools and and pop warner and whatever to come over and look after that age group and um really drive it on but they're also looking at at recruitment here so at opportunities that might open up in education-based football in the states for overseas players and the that's not the only avenue for, for, for young players either. There are other avenues um, open to us here in Ireland where we can highlight players, exceptional players, and move them on. But again, that's a, that's a shot, as you say. That's a shot for somebody. They make the national team, you know, are you going to be looked at? Are you going to be part of a bigger program again um, outside this country? Are you going to, you know, there are opportunities there. And we have had kids from here travel overseas and get offered um, scholarships and so on. Uh, to play football previously I mean the age limit when you arrived in, in this country for football was 18 but prior to that it was 16 and we did have we had a kid who went and um, he played for a prep school in New England 
and he was involved in the Cork Admirals at one time and I think he was involved in the Dublin Dragons as well. So there are other opportunities there. But look, I'm going to dial it back to something very simple. I lived beside a GA club all my life. And when I was a small kid, I didn't go to the GA club and then get on a bus and travel anywhere to play a game. They set up what was called a street league. And it was a smaller version. It was like a mini game. But to me, it was the biggest game in the, in the week. Yep. It was my street league match. And I was, going, I was going there. So, you know, if I'm going to... Um, if, I, if I'm a young kid and I sign up with the Panthers and I go to Westminster every Saturday to play um, and I'm playing, you know, five-a-side American football, that's going to be the biggest game for me, regardless of who the opponents are. When I was with uh, the Cork Admirals back in 2005 and 2006, I was working on, because for us to play, our nearest opponent at that time was either Limerick or Lucan. So if we were to have kids, we'd have to throw them on a bus and bring them on a, on, on a two-hour or three-and-a-half-hour drive. And that seemed unfeasible. So I was looking at setting up youth teams for a smaller version of football where even if we had 20 youth players, we would have a three-team league playing different games every week over a period of time with three or four drives because we're all using the same playbook. So we could turn that into one team pretty easily and drive to Dublin and play a youth team up there or drive to Limerick and play a team there. There was one. And that was my goal. You know, it was, right, the national programme will take time to get going. But if you've got 20 players, you've got enough for a, a workable game. And if you've got more than 20 players, you've got enough for a league. And you control everything. And I think the NFL programme follows that route where you can sign up a league uh, to play at a, a very young level and all the players, all the teams are named after um, NFL teams. So you'll have the Cowboys and the Steelers and so on. And they have these little jerseys and bits and pieces that look the same. And my notion on a national level was that, let's say, if there was a, a youth thing in Dublin, that it wouldn't just be the Panthers, but it would be like the Panthers, Rebels, and everybody else would start a youth, youth league. And their youth players would be divided up into, you know, you'd have the Vikings, the Panthers, the Rebels, uh, the Trojans, the whatever. And the same would be replicated in Belfast, that it wouldn't just be Belfast Trojans having a separate youth set up to... Um, Carrick Fergus Knights but that there will be a Belfast Youth League and that that will be set up and all the teams would be derived from or, or given the identity of a team elsewhere in the, in the league you know so you might have the Vipers the Cowboys um, you know you'd have the Pirates the Eagles whatever all playing football up there as well and then when it came to play a competition if you had one in Cork Dublin the Midlands and up, up in Belfast or up in the North that they would then be able to put out a representative team almost to play maybe two or three times a season. I think it would be a great idea. But you see, you can't wait for, this is the point, and I'm saying you can't wait for, this is not a criticism of a board because I've been on a board trying to do this. No, no, not at all. But if you can do it at a local level, so instead of getting somebody to start the league for 11-a-side youth football, if you're playing 5-a-side youth football or 7-a-side youth football, Locally, you don't need as many people. So it's kind of feasible that, you know, in, in the Dublin area, you'll be able to get those 20, 30 kids. And if you team up with another club in that area and they're pulling in youth players too and they're all amalgamated, then you've got a functioning league in your own area. You don't have to travel. That's your expense gone out the window. Um, yep. 
resources shared, double the amount of coaches. You've got more kids coming in. Um, you know, to turn around to a kid and say, or to a parent and say, look, we're, we're going to play, we're going to train eight, eight weeks and then play a game in Cork. <laughs> I'd rather play eight games and then still go and play the game in Cork. Yep. But just on yep. the back of having played eight smaller games. Yeah, I think so like you're, you're totally, all you're asking from a league level, like you're saying about the board is all you're asking from a league level is the infrastructure. All you'd be asking from a league from that level is, you know, we need to come up with a constitution, if it were, for what would happen if we had these kids come as far as, you know, the, the, an easier group to, to put these teams together and put it out there that we, we want to get this started and we have the rules kind of the, the constitution of what we need overall in place and what teams need to do to get registered and then just let it happen because I think I think teams will if you if you just set down those basic rules I think people will go out and 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 the kids will play I think you can get the kids I don't I, I think my biggest thing is historically I was always told when I came that there's too much competition but I just don't I don't believe in today's day and age when a, a YouTube star could be a nobody and they literally just put out content that you can get. I mean, marketing is easier and easier to do these days. So you can, a, a niche sport is what, you know, you, is what people are looking for and that they're still there. So I, I think you could get these kids. I really think you could get them if it were done correctly, but the infrastructure needs to be there from, from the board level that just to put the infrastructure together and let people go so do their work. If I put a hypothetical to you, if somebody in, in you know, at, at, at a board level, and I, I mean, they're working really hard to get you. Yes, I know. Run, I mean, you know, but if somebody dropped in a, a pack of, let's say, three sets of or four sets of 10 jerseys and pants, right? Somebody dropped them into your club and said, right, these are your uh, uniforms for 40 players. You can have a 14 league in South Dublin with all the other clubs in South Dublin area, um, you know. You, we'll, we'll provide you with the, the game day venue. We'll book a venue one day a week, every Saturday. You're going to have four training sessions with these guys and then play games with training sessions mixed in. And they're going to be short games and kid will play two games, two games a day. I mean, you know, that's, you're, you're going to bite somebody's hand off for that, you know? Um, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, it doesn't take much. But again, if I was in a club, I, I'd be cracking on with that myself. Yep. I'd literally be cracking yeah. on with that myself. Yeah. I'd be like, no, I'm just going to like, you know, and if, if they set up a league and if they set up something for that age group um, for your head, no, I'll be doing it with the blessing of the board and with the cover from the insurance and with the coaching qualifications that are required and so on. I'd be doing all that. Yep. Um, but that'd be my goal. Like I'd want, I'd want to be, you know, kids, you know, up to the age of, and including 16 playing as many games as they could in Cork before they ever have to get on a bus to play anybody. And let me tell you, they'd be much more competitive when they get there. Um, and that's the experience we had in the past. But I think, um, yeah, I think we're both on the same page there. Uh, and it, it'll be exciting. And, you know, the benefits for clubs are just, I mean, it goes without saying, but we still have to say it. The benefit with clubs are massive. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely massive, man. We have just been talking for the last hour and a half uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. We're going to get out of here in one minute, but I got to, you got to have one more great story from from 
from the from back in the day. You gotta you gotta have something that you could pull out that it's just a, a, a something. Maybe you were like, "Geez, I never thought out myself." But you gotta have a good story for me. I loved like you know the, you're full of them. So I, I don't mean to put you on the spot if you don't have one. It's fine. But there's got to be something from those old teams. You got a few a few players or something. Don't have to name names that were just if, okay. if, if there you could write a script about them, right? Yeah. So there's there's, there's I mean there's so many. Um, we should have started with this and just kept going. Yeah, maybe there will be another. Um, we will do this again yes, when I retire as a, a national team coach, and I can no longer be held uh, liable. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, you know, I was in uh, Spain and I was talking to some football people over in Barcelona, which is has got a huge catchment area outside Barcelona with football fields. You'll see them properly marked fields and pitches and everything. So I met some folks over there talking football. And um, only one of them had enough English to translate my Cork accent. And <laughs> at the time, we were training on that gravel. Uh, we used to call it the gravel pit. And so we were talking about facilities, and I was saying how good Jay had it. And we have to train on a gravel pit. And, man, life is so tough. And, you know, you don't know how tough you got it. And um, I was explaining this. And as I was talking about the gravel pit and, and stones and stuff, um, the faces around the table changed. And they changed horrifically. And some people got up and walked away. Like they were properly offended. <laughs> and my brother who, you know, speaks Catalan and Spanish like a native, having lived there, I called him over and I was like, you might want to step into this conversation. There's something going on here that I don't understand. So he asked the translator what he'd been telling everybody. And, and you know, the brother just cracked up laughing. Apparently, instead of gravel pit, he, he had translated it as graveyard. That the oh my God. training in a graveyard and we're knocking over headstones. <laughs> That's like, so funny that they were weren't even they weren't questioning it. They just immediately went to anger and disappointment. Like I don't, for, for, you know, the, the, the respect for, for the dead in their culture it was just yeah. then, uh, you know, <laughs> go and do this. You know, oh, we go train in the graveyard today, like we just trample over our ancestors. That's how tough we are. And that is so funny, and it's just to think that they were looking at each other like, "Is this guy for fucking real?" But they were going to ask, "Are you for fucking real? Did you actually horrified. say graveyard?" <laughs> Literally horrified, like looking at me in disgust, as if I had told them that we club seals to get our helmet linings or something. You know, <laughs> it was just a look of pure disgust in their face, and I was like, "God, something's going wrong here." Bail me out, and it was like, "Yeah." You're all training in graveyards. That is a fantastic <laughs> story. I really I, that <laughs> that's great. I love it. I love it, Coach Kieran. Thank you so much for for coming on the program tonight, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it was such a good chat. So such a I, I really I had a, I had a really good time. I hope you did too. I really oh, appreciate you you, uh, you coming on. Thanks so much. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're back, and uh, you know that you're recovered. As I said, I'm available for the tribute show anytime. I can take the, <laughs> have a laugh, but yeah, you know, it's it's great stuff. Keep it up, man. It's listen uh, at a minimum. At, at a at a minimum, you know, we'll, we'll we can we'll turn this into some kind of a network. I'd love to expand this. I know there's even been talk. You know, you know, if this is the new sort of route that I'm enjoying and going down, just similar to what you did. I'll be honest with you. That's why I think I I really feel a kinship because in 2013 or whatever it was, it was almost like the you were the media guy. You know, and now I feel like not I'm I'm a media guy. It's a 
fucking podcast I do once a week for myself for the most part and my mother and my father who listens out there too. Good. Thank you for listening. But like, you know, you know it, that's what that's what you were doing back in the day, and that's how you know when that when the when the, the story came out about Romo, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. The guys on the team were like, "Oh shit," you know that I'll never forget that game and that that match and that thing. And when you and I started talking, and even when you when you sent me out, I remember you sent me out a questionnaire, and and, and it was it was talked about my favorite player, and I said it was Barry Sanders <laughs> because I, even though I'm a defensive guy, just watching Barry Sanders growing up was just a uh-huh. thing of beauty. And you like this fucking guy's a defensive coach, and he's talking about. You even made a comment about it, like that is great, that is great, and we share. So I'd love to have you back on, and no matter what like is that. going on, I, I um, we'll, we'll, when the when the team gets back together, maybe we'll put something together. But I'd love to maybe do something for the sport, maybe start to go out to games or something eventually. If if I'm with my club or if I'm not, either way, I'd love to start doing that. But you're a big reason part of that and i really super appreciate that uh you know everything that not only you've done as far as me you know coaching in in the country and and helping me support what i do and how i do it and and that's another thing that i think needs to get done more you know in in this country is that that coaches all don't get along and i get that we all have egos especially at a club level there's there's a lot of egos that are involved and i totally understand that but even after talking to you know you know, when I talked to Ross and had him on the show, I, Ross and I never had a conversation before, you know, and, and, and he, uh, you know, just, and I would love to do that more. Thank you for giving the show a follow there. Um, I'd love to do that more, uh, uh, you know, with these guys because, and I think the country and as a whole, there needs to be, I don't, I don't, again, American Coaching Association or whatever, but, you know, the brotherhood needs to kind of, you know, we don't have to like each other, but we can do good things for each other if well, like, we're there like, for each other we've got more in common than we don't yes and we face and we face the exact same struggles and there's nobody better to support you than somebody who's going through the same knee-deep shit that you're going through there's yep. nobody better to dig you out of that than somebody who's been that in that exact same position and i tell you another thing when you break down the the personalities and you get talking to football i love that show that you did i i <laughs> Love that show that you did with those coaches, fantastic stuff. But when you well, I think that the, the I think that that's my, one of my. I think that that's what made you, you and I kind of hit it off because at the time, like you said, you were transitioning from, you you were not at a club level for the most part at all anymore. Yeah. You were you were, you were done done with that. So that's you kind of felt that that's what, you know, that was one of your roles was to help anybody who was willing to listen and to have a conversation with them. And I think that's what I'm what I've learned, you know, at least through the pandemic and through, you know, what I've gone through with at the club level coaching and becoming a head coach. And then, you know, as I've learned is that, you know, that with a family now and a toddler and an 11 year old and, you know, where I'm at now compared to living with my in-laws when I had nothing but time and no job and I can invest every ounce of energy into the game of football. I think now for me is almost in that sort of a transition where I'm here to, I think I can help these guys. You know what I mean? I think I can help the coaches, you know, and if, and if, they, if anybody wants to talk as a coach, you know, I, I will sit down with anybody and I love doing this, what I'm doing with you. I love having this conversation and having these chats. And even though, you know, we talked about football most of the time, we didn't talk about 
football. You know, we talked about what we love about it. We kept it we, to, 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 to get it back to that, to always, you know, do. And I think that we can do, I think that we should put something, you know, together and I'll put it out there for any of them. If any of them are listening, you know, or if they listen to the show, you know, you, you call me up, you got my number, you can, uh, you can talk to me anytime. And again, I'm, I, I know that I can't, we're signing off one more time, but Karen O'Sullivan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You have been, you know, superstar. We're going to get you on again, folks out there listening. Thank you so much for listening. An hour and 45 minutes of, of uh, two guys just rambling on with, with one another, but I super am happy about this show and I'm super fired up that I, that I did it. And thanks everybody out there for listening. This is hit the lotto podcast episode number 12 signing off. Thank you. And bye-bye. Hit the lotto.